Welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold, and we're in the third Sunday of Lent. And today in Oral Valley Catholic, we're going to talk about the scriptures for the third Sunday of Lent, year B. And so some parishes will use the readings uh, that involve the woman at the well, uh, but in some of our masses we'll do that. But in other masses, we're going to do the readings for year B because in the church, the preacher gets uh, two sets of texts that he can choose to preach from. But I've decided to do Oral Valley Catholic on year B. And what's in year B? Well, the first reading, or the second reading rather, is from 1 Corinthians. And it's about Christ crucified. But then the Old Testament, the New Testament reading are about the Ten Commandments and Jesus cleansing the temple. So how are all these readings tied together? And what's the call to the Christian in Lent? And so stay tuned. There's lots more. The second reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 goes, Brothers and sisters, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, Jews and Greeks alike, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The tie-in between 1 Corinthians and uh, the reading about Jesus cleansing the temple is, as I will talk about later, this whole thing of where the money changers have set up for business and how they undermine the Gentiles. But this is all pulled together in the crucifixion of Jesus. So think what St. Paul directs our attention to as he preaches Christ crucified. What do the Jews want? They want signs. What do the Greeks want? They want wisdom. What's being talked about here? Well, signs, miracles, because in the Old Testament, God comes down in a glory cloud on top of Mount Sinai or into the temple. There's lightning, there's pillars of fire. Elijah raises people from the dead. Elisha raises people from the dead. Show us something that'll prove that you're from God. That's what the signs are. What do the Greeks want? Wisdom, and the Greek word is Sophia. It's the root of the word philosophia, philosophy. Because remember, Plato, Aristotle, this whole line of great Greek philosophers, they want understanding. So they're expecting someone who will be the ultimate philosopher. By the way, Sophia means wisdom, like I said. Philos means friendship or love of, as in Philadelphia, the the city of brotherly love. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. And so let's, let's pull this apart a little bit. The Jews want signs. What do they get in the crucifixion? They get a man stripped naked in front of his family and the entire community who asphyxiate, because that's what happens on the cross. It's like being hung by the neck because as you sink down, you can't breathe anymore and you die of asphyxiation. So the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy that's in the Torah, chapter 21, verses 22 to 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, 
but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is accursed by God. You shall not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance. So what's the stumbling block for the Jews? The scandal of the cross. That's the Greek word for stumbling block, skandalion. The stumbling block is a man who hangs on a tree to death is cursed. When you and I think of hanging, we think of a noose around the neck. Um, but in the ancient world, there are other ways of asphyxiating you and hanging you on a tree. The Romans did it by the thousands. If you ever saw the movie Spartacus, which is a true-to-life event, the Romans, and this is just like 60 or 80 years before Jesus was born, hung uh, 2,000 slaves on a tree uh, on these 2,000 crosses. They just crucified when they conquered Jerusalem in, the, in 70. According to Josephus, they hung 500 Jews a day on trees, crucified them. And so Jesus, one more death by crucifixion, one more hanging. Why is he different? He's different because of the Last Supper. If the night before you die on the tree, you say, this is my body, this is my blood, it's being given over to you. So there was a sign, the sign's the Eucharist. And it calls into question the stumbling block, the scandal of Deuteronomy. But how about the Greeks who want wisdom? So Cicero, uh, who is one of the great Roman philosophers, even uh, Augustine talked about Cicero, though he didn't like Cicero very much. Cicero was uh, murdered by Octavian, who later became Augustus, who was the emperor when Jesus was born. So Cicero is 30, 40 years before Jesus' time, but he wrote this about the Roman practice of crucifixion. The executioner, the veiling of the head, and the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. For it's not only the actual occurrence of these things, but indeed the very mention of them that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. Why? Because for the Romans, that's how you killed slaves. They're down there. They'll always be down there. We have people that do this for us and get rid of this garbage. But no honorable person dies by crucifixion. Honorable people are beheaded, or like Cicero, I think he was stabbed to death, but they didn't crucify him. So think about these two things, stumbling block and foolishness. That's what St. Paul says. The cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So the stumbling block, how can I believe in, if I'm a Jew in a Messiah that's, that hangs on a tree? Read Deuteronomy from the Torah. That's God's words. For the Romans and the Greeks, it's foolish to think that a slave, someone who's beneath our contempt, can be the source of wisdom. Did you know that the uh, Greek word in the Bible for fool or foolishness is moria, moriah? Um, it basically is the root for our word moron. You'd have to be a moron to believe that someone uh, hung on a tree could be, as St. Paul concludes, the power and the wisdom of God. But St. Paul believed in him. And why? How is it that God takes the cross, which is a stumbling block and foolish, 
and makes it instead the sign of his power and wisdom that what human beings think of hanging on a tree is not how God thinks about it. You see, the whole idea of sacrifice is you take the lamb and it becomes what you just lay all your burdens on. It was the whole idea of the scapegoat that uh, was in uh, the Torah and the holiness code. And so Jesus becomes the scapegoat. The scapegoat is made pure because that the person upon which the community takes outside the walls and hangs on a tree, that he becomes the risen Lord. Do you know what's really interesting about that? The temple was in the walls of, within the walls of Jerusalem. The Bible makes it very clear that Jesus was taken outside the walls where he was hung on a tree. Because instead of being in the sacredness of where the temple was, he was taken out into the profane world. Do you think that when Jesus was hung on a tree, that he took the sanctity of the temple and took it out into the rest of the world? That the profane world was raised up to the sacred? And that's really the point of what the gospel is today and our discussion about the Ten Commandments, to which we now turn. To the alert listeners of Oral Valley Catholic, and you are all alert, you'll notice that in the readings for today from uh, the book of Exodus chapter 20, there's the full version of the Ten Commandments, the second pared down reading, reading, is always a shortened version. It doesn't cut any of the commandments out, but um, the Ten Commandments are this whole understanding of what it means to be a human being. You know, St. Augustine gave us how we think about the Ten Commandments in a catechetical sense. And so, since you can do the readings from Exodus, I'm going to turn to how you probably were asked to memorize them. And you can take what the church puts in the catechism, compare it back to the scriptures, and you can see that no commandments were left out, but it was put into a format where we could all memorize it because there are 10 of them, because we have 10 fingers, and we want to make sure that everybody understands the rules. Here are the 10 commandments. I am the Lord your God. You shall not have strange gods before me. Number two, you shall not take the, no the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number three, Remember to keep holy the Lord's day. Number four, honor your father and your mother. That was my dad's favorite commandment. Number five, you shall not kill. Number six, you shall not commit adultery. Number seven, you shall not steal. Number eight, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Number nine, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. The Lutherans, the Orthodox, and the Catholics all do it this way. I think people who um, have a different approach, you know, fundamentalists and others who consider themselves just what the Bible, the book says, uh, they can arrange them differently. But this is the classic way of uh, making the Ten Commandments accessible. So um, why do we do it this way? The Catechism says that the division and numbering of the commandments have varied in the course of history. 
The present catechism follows the division of the commandments established by St. Augustine, which has become traditional in the Catholic Church. It is also that of the Lutheran confessions. The Greek fathers worked out a slightly different division, which is found in the Orthodox churches and the Reformed communities. Um, all the same ten commandments, some make the first three, four, and then squash down, I think it's uh, commandments nine and ten, in the second tablet of the commandments into one commandment. But it's all the same commandments. That's, by the way, from uh, paragraph 2066 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And so when you think of a picture of Moses, it comes down with two stone tablets. That's why they talk about the two tablets of the law. The first tablet is about the love of God, which is about uh, the commandments about, I'm the Lord your God, don't have idols, don't take my name in vain, keep the Lord's day holy, keep holy the Sabbath. That's all about love of God. And then tablet two is love of neighbor, uh, the love of your parents. Uh, you don't kill, you don't commit adultery, you don't steal stuff, you tell the truth, you, you don't uh, even think about your neighbor's spouse. You don't even think about taking your neighbor's property. And that's why when Jesus says that, uh, what's the most important commandment? He says, love God with all your heart, your soul, and all your being. But the second is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. Because it's like the first because the second tablet of the law is all about love of neighbor. And neighbor is the image and likeness of God in the world. That's where Jesus gets his fundamental teaching. So we talk about St. Augustine or the um, fathers of the church organizing the Ten Commandments. Jesus squeezes it down into two. Everything else is just footnotes. But you ought to ask what they mean because the Ten Commandments are prescriptive. Thou shalt not uh, kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The first three are, pro, are not prescriptive, but proscriptive. They prescribe something like a medicine. I'm the Lord your God. Well, don't have strange gods before me is prescriptive. But don't take the Lord's God your name in vain is prescriptive. But remember to keep the Lord's stay holy is proscriptive. It's like uh, telling you uh, to do something. So here's how you would think about it in a positive way. The first tablet about love of God. It's about the sanctity of God. Uh, not everything is profane. God is transcendent, and our hearts, our minds, we are all lived, lifted up to God in love of God because it's love that transforms us. And if you love him, then you keep holy his name. It's like if you love your spouse, your children, you don't use their name as a curse word. And then about the Sabbath, it's about the holiness of time, the sanctity of time. Your life doesn't have sacred and profane elements, parts that belong in the city of Jerusalem, parts that belong in the profane world. Sanctity of time is about every moment of our lives given to God. And so the second, ta uh, uh, the second tablet, the love of neighbor. Being a father and mother is holy. Other people's lives is ho are holy, they're sacred. Other people's marriages, they're holy. They're a sign of the relationship between God and his people. People's property, because they need that for stability, as St. Thomas Aquinas would say, you have the right, the property is sacred. 
but its use is for the public good. Just because you have rights to a stream that runs through your property doesn't mean you can pour poison in it. And so you have this use of property, this bit of dominion over God's creation, but it's used for the good of all your neighbors, right? Because you're supposed to love your neighbor and the sanctity of their life. Then uh, the sanctity of speech and truth, why disinformation, mingling lies and truth together is a deep sin against God because it mangles reality. The sanctity of another spouse. You should want other people's marriages to be successful, to take joy in their marriage and their children. And then the sanctity of other people's property that they need for their marriage. Again, it's about holiness. Things are set aside for the image of God in the world, the two tablets of the law. And now Psalm 19, which is the psalm for the reading today, says, um, the law of God is perfect. The precepts of God rejoice the hearts. The commands of God are pure and enlighten the eyes. And God's commandments are true and righteousness altogether. You know, human beings need structure in life. Everybody needs structure. Because it's structure that allows us to be fully human. What kind of world is it when any elevated sense of human beings just start with justice, when it's for sale? when it's just crude, when it only serves the interests of the powerful? How is it that the world and all of our uh, well-being are better off? Well, just take through that understanding and see how the sanctity of your parents, your marriages, property, the truth, other people's lives, other people's spouses and property, all of these things, you don't cheat on your spouse you don't get someone else's spouse to cheat with you. So anyway, if you're a single person, something like that. Wow, the Ten Commandments, they seem so common sense. Why do we have such trouble with them? Well, let's turn to the gospel and see what Jesus has to offer about all of this. Oh, how sad and so distressed was that Well, last week we were in the Gospel of Mark, but since Mark is the shortest of the Gospels and year B uses Mark's Gospels, the church augments Mark's Gospel um, with readings from uh, John's Gospel. Years A, B, and C are uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John's Gospel is part of years A, B, and C, but John's Gospel doesn't get its own year. But you see more of John... Uh, during year B when we're reading from Mark, because like I point out, Mark's gospel is like the man's version of, of uh, Jesus' story. Uh, it's really bare. Stories are short. John's gospel just tells you everything you need to know, a complete and beautiful understanding. Uh, in Mark's gospel, Jesus curses a fig tree. The next day he comes back, the fig tree's dead. Uh, boom, story over. Well, uh, John's gospel, which we're in today in year B, talks about the cleansing of the temple, which is in all the synoptics. Because to understand that story is to understand why Christ is crucified and why he's crucified outside the walls, why his crucifixion isn't just for the Jewish people, 
but for the entire world because it's the heart of today's gospel. So you remember the basic story of the cleansing of the temple. Jesus has entered the city because we're in, um, uh, this is actually in the other gospels, it happens just before Jesus is crucified. In John's gospel, it happens after the wedding of Cana. And so um, in, in John's gospel, Jesus goes to the city. He goes up and down to Jerusalem several times in John's gospel. In the other gospels, like Luke, he goes once and he's crucified at the end of his, of his uh, ministry. But uh, John's gospel says that Jesus went in Jerusalem. He made a whip of cords and uh, he started to uh, chase all of the money lenders out of the, out of the, uh, out of the temple. And that the quote, the Jews complained about it. Well, remember that Jesus is a Jew. Uh, all of his disciples are Jews. So to say when John's gospel uses the phrase Jews, it's always contextual. So they're in Jerusalem. And what John's gospel means about the people who are offended, which the term in the gospel is the Judeo, Judeo, the Judeans, basically. Well, remember Jesus from Galilee, which is, Jesus is a Judean. He was born in Bethlehem, but he's brought up in Galilee, which is up the north. Jerusalem's in Judah. So it's like, we're in Arizona, you know, the Californians are so uppity. So Jesus goes from Tucson to L.A., and so he's talking about the Americans there in L.A. and how they treat them. Uh, Jesus is now a towner in Jerusalem. So this clash with the Jews is the difference between being a hick from Galilee and being a social sophisticate that's from the city. And the city, of course, is Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting because that split between the people in the north and the people of the city of Jerusalem goes back to the time of King Solomon's son. And remember, there's this huge rebellion and there's this split between Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And in the north, they decide that they're going to erect their own temple at, at Shiloh because what Solomon had done when he erected the original temple, Jesus is in the temple, the second temple that's built after the Babylonians destroy Solomon's temple, which is the most magnificent temple. Um, what happens is, is Solomon orders everyone, wherever they are, to have to come and worship in, in Jerusalem. This is part of the reason why the 10 northern tribes just uh, say to the Judeans, no way, we're not going to be under your thumb. We're not going to let one tribe dominate us and tell us where we can pray to God. Because this split between the people of the north and the people from the big city of Jerusalem is an ancient division in Jerusalem, I mean, in, the, in, uh, in Israel. It's at the root of the civil war between Israelites and Judeans, the ten tribes versus the Judeans, and I think the Benjamites in the south. And so it, you could see it if you thought about it. The real Catholics are from Rome. And you're always just a hick from this little town of Tucson when you visit Rome, as opposed to going to the place where everybody worships together. Actually, I've been treated very, very well in Rome. So why is Jesus so upset with what the people, the Jerusalemites are doing, the Jews in Jerusalem? Because he says, you've made my father's house a marketplace. So the first century historian Josephus says 
that the Passover, when everybody went up to Jerusalem, uh, was such a big thing. So we know Jesus is visiting at Passover. And Josephus would say sometimes a million people would show up. Imagine all the sheep that are slaughtered when that many people show up. Well, all those people on the road couldn't bring the sacrifice from their home village. Or what if they came from uh, Alexandria in Egypt? Or they traveled from where they lived in Asia Minor, Greece, or Rome? You can't expect them to bring the sacrifice for the Passover meal with them. And so there was a service provided in Jerusalem where they would take the money changers, all this currency from around the world, convert it into temple coin so you weren't buying sacrifices with profane money. You can then take that money and you could buy a, a lamb for sale or uh, turtle doves, whatever the sacrifice you could afford is. And so the point is that the money changers in the temple are performing an important uh, service so that you can fulfill God's commandment about celebrating the Passover. Why is Jesus so upset about that? Well, it's always about geography. So on the Temple Mount, this is how the temple was organized. There was the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go. It was surrounded. There was, there was the altar in front where sacrifices are made. Then there's this big wall around it that the rest of the Jewish people were allowed into, but you had to be a Jew. There were signs on it, and they've actually found these signs. They say, if you're a Gentile, unclean, and you try to get into the court of the Jews, uh, where the Jewish people are allowed, their place, you'll be slain by the temple guard. Well, we have ushers now. We don't actually kill anybody from uh, out of town who comes to, to, and who's not Catholic, who comes into our churches. But this is how seriously it was taken in Jesus's time. Then there's the outer court, which is called the court of the Gentiles, which is the important part. And anybody was allowed in there. Why? Because there were all these people called God-fearers who, because they were adults, probably didn't want to be circumcised. And so they didn't really want to go uh, full Judean by getting circumcised. Or, you know, maybe some of them thought of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as just this another God to worship. Who knows who all those Gentile people are wandering in and round out of this outer courtyard? But the point of Jesus's uh, message, you're making my father's house a marketplace. That outer, outer courtyard where the Gentiles are, that is still his father's house. It's as much his father's house as the courtyard of the Jewish people and the Holy of Holies. So the money changers, the people with all these animals, are set up in the outer courtyard. So the Jewish people can buy what they need on the temple precincts and then go into the next place where only they're allowed so that they can have their sacrifice being, being made. Well, Jesus is saying that this outer courtyard is as much a place of prayer for all peoples as anybody else. And so he says, uh, he says as much, it's a place of prayer. How can you pray when business is going on? How can you pray when sheep are bleeding around you? So do your business, but do it outside the temple complex. Uh, aren't there shops enough out there? Can't you figure out a place 
to do this so people can get what they need, pass through the outer courtyard of the Gentiles into the courtyard of the, of the, of the Jewish people so they can uh, perform their religious rituals. This is why people are upset with Jesus. Because it's just easier, isn't it, to have everybody set up uh, right there in the narthex of St. Mark's um, as opposed to out in the courtyard. It's what makes me uncomfortable sometimes about how we think about setting up in the church is that do we make the same sin against God's house as um, the Jewish people who are doing legitimate things but just not in the right place? So this is why uh, Jesus' disciples, quoting Psalm 61, say, zeal for your house has consumed me. Because Jesus loved the place of prayer. Jesus loved his father's house. Let's pull Paul's 1 Corinthians chapter 1 about um, the crucifixion, Christ crucified uh, as being this privileged way into the holiness of God, the Ten Commandments, and what Jesus does about the temple and about his body as the new temple all together to make sense of what we're going to do together this Lent. And so let's go back to St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, where the crucified Christ, which is what St. Paul preaches, is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness, um, the foolishness of God to the Greeks and Romans, but to St. Paul, it's the power and wisdom of God. Why is Jesus crucified amongst criminals, the lowest of the low in the most shameful way possible? How is it that this is how God saves us? God comes all the way down from his place, and he goes into the deepest shame of the human beings. He goes into the pits of death. He visits Hades, if you remember the Oro Valley Catholic from last week. And then he ascends right back up through his resurrection and ascension in heaven. Hans Urs von Balthasar says that God descended into the most depraved, abandoned, and desolate aspects of what it means to be a human being. He takes away all the stumbling blocks to him. God is, in human language, foolish in his love but he reaches out to us so that all people are called to prayer because all people are called to the Catholic Church. You know, in our Christian world, um, people participate in faith at different places. Even Catholics are at different places. And it's like the courtyard of the Holy of Holies, the courtyard of the Jews, and the courtyard of the Gentiles. The church is like this onion uh, because faith is a journey. It's like a pilgrimage to uh, Jerusalem to make this Passover sacrifice. People make pilgrimages to the Catholic Church to participate in that sacrifice. And there's something awful when we put barriers up to them because Christ was, was crucified outside the city, in the profane world, in a shameful place, to tear down barriers between God and his people, to crack open the wealth of Israel and share it with all of humanity. That God is holy. His name is holy. 
time that we inhabit in space and time is holy. Parents are holy. Life is holy. Marriage is holy. Property is holy when dedicated to the good of others. The truth is holy. Other people's marriages are holy. Other people's property is holy. Everything that the image of God touches in this world is made holy. God touches lepers and the leper becomes clean. God touches the Gentile and the Jew and they become clean. So Lent, I think one of the greatest days in Lent is Ash Wednesday. You can be an atheist and come and get ashes. We'll give ashes to anybody. Um, and it's this reach out, this call out to the world so that people can make this pilgrimage to God. You know, Pope Francis has done so much to try to remove the barriers between people who feel separated by divorce and remarriage or separated because uh, their sexual orientation is not the norm and they can't participate in the sacrament of marriage like everybody else, uh, other people uh, try to. All the ways that he says, we remove the barriers between us and the migrant, the barriers between us and the poor, the barriers between God and the unborn. We, our job is not to put up barriers between God and the people that he calls, but to be his ambassadors like St. Paul and to remember what it means to preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for some, foolishness to others, but the power and wisdom of God. And at the heart of it, you see the story of the temple where God wants to make holy even the place where the Gentiles are so that they can pray. Beautiful sets of stories here for year B in the third Sunday of Lent to remember what a privilege it is to be a disciple of Christ. This Lent, let's all try to remember that we are made for holiness. This is Oro Valley Catholic. This has been Father John Arnold. Was that mother?